Well, um, I hope you'll uh, humor me for a moment if I tell you a story about my four-year-old. Um, I'm trying desperately to get a spiritual significance out of it, and I, I hope that even if I can't find one, you will. Um, but uh, this morning, um, it was starting to snow after everyone had gone to bed last night, and um, I've got a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, and an eleven-year-old. And uh, I, the four-year-old is always the first one up, and so I, I knew that the key was going to be as soon as she got up, she would look out the window and see what was going on, and then wake up the entire house. So I was going to have to do my best to try to intercept that. So, so sure enough, extremely uh, bright and early, um, all of a sudden I heard within the room of the four-year-old speaking to the six-year-old, Nicholas, look out the window, there's snow. So I thought, okay, well, they're always the first two up anyway, so I just have to run before they get to the other room. So there was this race down the hall, and she basically zipped right past, and Anna's already yelling to the 911 year old, Magdalene, into the snow. So I kind of had to tackle her and just before they actually woke up and, and whisk her downstairs. And uh, so she said, Daddy, well, can I just go get in my, in my snowsuit? So she went down in the basement and and, and came out in one, you know, one of those, it looks kind of like a space suit, you know, it's, it must have been really fun to, when we were young to wear those. And uh, so then she, she came to the front door and she was, she was looking out very seriously and she just said, I can't go out. And I said, why can't you go out, Josephine? And she said, because the old, older children only let me walk in the paths that they've made and there's no paths. <laughs> so I said, well, I will look, I know, you know that they don't want you to get the footprints everywhere, so look, let's just leave the whole patio without footprints, but you can just go and, and run around in the yard, so you know, that, that won't be a problem. So she's looking and she goes, I can't jump over the patio. <laughs> Um, that's the end of the story. <laughs> so I, I, I think the significance of this is that um, it's like getting to the front yard is, is the spiritual life, but you can't jump over the patio. And there's certain things you have to do along the way. That's I'm, I'm going to work on making that connection uh, by the end of the lecture, but I, I hope that in any case uh, you don't mind my telling that story. It's little things like that to you know, make parenting worthwhile. Um, I want to give a quick review of last week and then move into some thoughts uh, for this week. We talked about a reason last time and, and man as a, as a rational animal. And we uh, focused on reason as being a power of perceiving reality. And we saw it as a power that's designed to see the truth, a truth that we then live by. So we developed the notion that human life is fundamentally about spiritual food, food for our reason, food for our intellect, or food for the soul. This is the plane on which true human life is lived, as it were, on the level of the rational, seeing truth 
and living truth. We develop this a little further, I hope, to the point of being able to see that reason was truly designed to be able to receive the word of God. Man at root as a rational animal is a creature whose whole being is precisely designed to receive the word of God and somehow then to live it. And yet that simply is human life. And anything short of that just isn't. In a sense, it's that simple. We noted that sometimes we forget this. And we use the image of St. James in his epistle, where he, the great image of even sometimes a man who's looked in the mirror forgets his own face. But when we forget that our life is about receiving the Word of God and, as it were, keeping the Word of God, we have, in fact, forgotten who we are. And one of the main manifestations of this is when we do our own will rather than the will of God. And, the, and, and the, the beauty of this insight, again, is that same fundamental point. We're designed to receive and live His Word. When we forget that, it's most expressed in our doing our own will rather than His will, which is expressed in His Word. And thus we might say that is... Fundamentally, spiritual death is not to live a truly human life, one focused on our will as opposed to his will. Reason, again, designed to receive, to live the Word of God. We concluded by saying that this fundamentally takes two forms that we can kind of judge ourselves on and think in terms of living his commandments and contemplating his face. Two distinct but very related ways, as it were, of receiving his word. The word expressed in commandments, which again tell us how to live for our own fulfillment. And then the word in the sense of not a word that directs our actual living through the commandments, but just a word to be, as it were, consumed in contemplation in gazing upon his face his face of course in the spiritual sense which is the word which we then live on I'd like to today take a, a little bit of a, of a more philosophical turn to just get kind of scrape inside there and, and try to understand really these very same points. So the themes have all already been set out. And just to turn them around before our eyes uh, just a little bit more. And so the two things I'm going to do is, first of all, this, uh, say this kind of philosophical turn. The uh, title for today's lecture is The Powers of the Soul and Their Fulfillments. So I'd like to speak for a little bit, not, not, uh, not terribly long, but for a little bit on what we call the powers of the soul. 
And again, I'm going to make a little reference to Aristotle, and that's going to be a, a kind of philosopher's treatment. But then turn to do something that I noted last time that we would do, and that was when we asked the question, why is it that we so often do forget who we are? Why are we like that man in the Epistle of St. James? We, we see ourselves in the mirror, we see our own face, but then somehow we forget this. And I think this is particularly relevant for us as Christians. I mean, clearly, if we're not living God's word as we should, it's not that we haven't been taught it, it's that we're forgetting. And so we asked the question last time, why is it that we, we don't need to ask about others, why is it that we so often forget who we are and don't truly live his word? And I mentioned that I thought we could have a fruitful reflection upon that by looking at the parable of the sower and looking at the different kinds of ground, earth, that receive the seed. And interestingly, one I'm going to refer, um, when we come to that, to uh, the interpretation of the fathers of the church, which they have some very interesting thoughts, but one of the more sobering ones I didn't put in the quotation sheet that I passed out was one of the fathers of the church said, well, there's um, four kinds of, of soil, and um, three out of the four don't make it. And this is a sobering insight for us if we think in those terms. Well, there's an awful lot that aren't making the narrow path, even if they had received the word and had seemed to be going along all right. Fathers are always good for kind of a good sobering slap in the face like that. So uh, did we, did Sabatino, did we pass out those quotations? Okay, so we'll, we'll be turning to that shortly. First, the more uh, philosophical element. Um, basic overview of, of uh, powers of the soul. This is basically Aristotle's term. What is, a, what is a power of the soul? Power of the soul can be defined as an ability of the soul to perform some kind of operation. So in a philosophy of human nature course, one of the main focuses after, after going through things where we just try to come to some understanding of what we mean by the term soul, how can we be sure that there is a soul, and obviously we can't do all those things here today. We're even going to give a very brief view of the powers. The powers of soul are the thing that a philosophy of human nature course spends the most time on. For you really get to know the creature in question, in this case the human creature, human nature, by looking at the powers that the human soul has. For you know a thing by how it acts. And it's very obvious from experience that the human soul has a whole set of powers. Powers, the most of which are exercised in the body. But they are powers of the soul. One way that we know that they're powers of the soul is from the very simple fact that the body doesn't do anymore any of the things it does when the soul is gone. This is not a point of religion. This is a point of what Aristotle would have called science. This is very straightforward. Aristotle was a great scientist. He understood natural things. And it was very clear to him that a living thing has a soul that animates it, for you cannot account any other way 
for the amazing operations that living things have. Those very operations that they don't have when they're not alive. So the soul is an animating principle and it has powers in it which are exercised, the lower powers of which are exercised in the body. The higher powers are not directly exercised in the body, but they're still very affected by what goes on in the body. So let's just take a, a quick kind of tour of the powers. We won't look at all of them, but by far the most important are what we call intellect and will, which everyone is already familiar with those terms. Those are called the most spiritual powers of the soul. Those are powers that will still be exercised in the next life, even during that time when we don't have our body. So they're powers that aren't directly exercised in the body, though very influenced by the body. They are more purely spiritual powers. We understand powers in terms of what their objects are. There's always some object that's kind of the defining object for that power. We distinguish the different powers by saying, well, okay, the soul has the ability for these kinds of operations and also has the ability for these kinds of operations and these very different kinds of operations. So we name these different powers by those different kinds of operations that the soul has. So that we have these operations that we can say are operations or actions of knowledge which are always about coming to truth, that makes us realize, okay, one of the fundamental powers, the central power of the soul is what we call reason or intellect. We don't have to make a distinction between those terms, reason or intellect, which is defined in terms of what the philosophers would call, you don't have to worry about the terminology, the formal object, which is kind of the defining object, truth. Truth is what the intellect is about. It's, as it were, the defining object. We have this power of coming to truth. So that is what we define the intellect in terms of. It is the power of perceiving or getting at the truth. The other key power that we would want to look at, and we'll mention a couple more besides, is the will, which is also called the rational appetite, and the defining object of the will is good. Truth versus good. The will is all about getting at, as it were, good things. We want, we have intellectual desires. The main act of the will is the act of loving, which is willing, as it were, the good. And this can take many different forms which we won't go into, but again, the defining object that the will, as it were, is after and about is goodness. There's another power that we call sense appetite, which we might also, in more common terms, call bodily appetite. That breaks down into a number of couple of different bodily appetites, but we can basically lump it together and just call it the power of sense appetite. It also is about good, as the way the will is. Note that the term appetite is in common between the two. But this is more bodily appetite. Thus, it's things that appeal to the body is the object that particularly corresponds to what we're calling here the sense appetite. There are other powers, the powers of growth, the power of nutrition that we don't have to go into. Now, the main thing that we want to keep in mind about these powers of the soul 
is that they are only satisfied or fulfilled when they achieve that for which they were designed. Again, this has been a theme in the couple of days that we've had together, that we can see in all of nature, particularly in human nature, a design going on where powers are are about achieving something. Intellect is about achieving something. Will is about achieving something. Sense appetite is about achieving something. All of these powers are clearly driven. They're designed to go somewhere. And when they get to where they're designed to go, then we have fulfillment. Then we have what Aristotle just has this this great term that that, uh, St. Thomas loves to use too. When, When things natural get to where they're going, then you have rest. Rest. Each of the different powers of the soul is about achieving something. It's been designed to go somewhere. And if and when it gets there, it will rest. Now, I'm not going to be able to give a philosophical argument for what I'm about to say. As you can imagine, we're not able to to make an argument for each piece of the puzzle. But I think you'll be able to, to appreciate that it, it, what we're saying here makes sense, and I think you'll, you'll kind of grant, uh, grant it without my saying, okay, but here's the whole argument Aristotle would have gone into. You realize, of course, that's what a whole philosophy course would do. But we can look, we can look quickly at those powers that we just mentioned and, and ask, what is it that will bring them to rest? What is it that will bring them to fulfillment? And, and Aristotle has a beautiful way of, of talking about these things. And again, St. Thomas Aquinas just, just completely picks up on them. And, and, and the language used is, is along these lines. The intellect sure is about truth, but it's not just about any truth. It's about the truth, which is the source of all other truth. The intellect is designed to get to the truth of things. And the real truth of things is only had if you get to the truth that is the source of all truth. Already right there, do you see how it makes sense, even philosophically, to say that human reason was designed to live the word of God? Because it's very obvious that reason is designed for truth. But then, they, where is that going to be fulfilled? Because we all know there's many different truths. But you really only get a truth if, in fact, you've gotten to the truth that is the source of all truth. For then you really have truth, as it were. Same thing can be said about the power of the will. At the end of the day, it's not about just getting to any old good or just any set of goods but to the good that is the source of all good. This to me is, is, is the most perhaps obvious and, and powerful philosophical point. It is so clear from human experience. Human desires seem to be endless. We all know this from our own lives. We want and we want and we want and we are never, ever fully deeply satisfied. 
There's a very good philosophical reason behind that. The power of will in your soul and mind is designed for goodness. To love goodness. To, as it were, reach out and have goodness. And it seeks it in, in many places and in many instances. But ultimately, it only comes to rest when it gets to the source of goodness. That, of course, is what then happiness would be, wouldn't it? As St. Thomas likes to say, when you truly achieve that state where there's nothing else to desire that you don't have. And that's only when we get to the goodness that is the source of all goodness. That's the only way that then the desires will come to rest. Sense appetite also. Sense appetite is designed for something. And when you think of sense appetite, th think of the various passions that we have, the hunger that we have on a bodily level. There's, of course, a whole set of them. These are, in general, geared towards bodily flourishing in different ways. Nourishment, safety, procreation. But there's a way that these are truly fulfilled and, as it were, where they then come to rest. They come to their fulfillment when those bodily goods are truly attained. And now the trick there is, what does it look like to truly attain a bodily good? And we'll come back to that in a moment. Another key part of, of Aristotle and Hero and both the other great Greek philosopher and Plato's insight into the soul's powers and how they're fulfilled is in this insight. That the goods of all the powers are only achieved when reason, that central power, when reason or intellect, again call it either one, sees the most fundamental truths and then rules and guides the other powers in light of those truths. Now that might sound a bit dry, and I'm going to say it again because in a sense that's, that really captures it. When reason sees, for now I'm just going to say, fundamental truths, and then in light of those truths, it guides, it rules, it governs all the other powers of the soul. Plato and Aristotle spend a long time on this, and one of the biggest things I try to do in the, my, our introductory philosophy courses is to convey to the students the power of this image of when that which is supposed to rule rules how beautiful this is and how then and only then is everything achieved. One, one analogy that uh, Plato uses is he says health of the soul, which of course at the end of the day is the human good. Health of the soul is like health in the body where each power is functioning in its own place in the proper hierarchy. 
And what does that mean? Plato seeks every way that he can to convey what true flourishing looks like, both on the bodily level, but then particularly on the spiritual level, and where the spiritual and the bodily come together, is when reason is ruling. Now, of course, the big question is, okay, it's very easy for us to say, all right, for the good human life, reason needs to rule over the other powers, for that's the rational life, which of course is true. You reasonably ask, what does that look like? What does reason rule by, or what, what, what principle is it using if reason rules? Well, I think the best way to put that is that the key insight or principle that reason has, human reason, if it is to govern and thus have all the powers come to their fulfillment, is the primacy of spiritual goods. And that bodily goods serve spiritual goods. This is at the heart of understanding the powers of the soul and how they ultimately flourish. Let me just give a couple of quick examples. Fits in well with something that we talked about in the very first time together when we were talking about man, animal, or angel. Consider the desire for food. What I'd like to, what I'd like to help us understand is how is it that this simple but extremely important desire in fact achieves what it's supposed to when it is ruled by reason. Well, how is reason going to rule over the desire for food? Well, it rules over the desire for food by seeing the end or goal that the desire for food is supposed to serve. And again, that key insight is that even our desire for food is itself to serve spiritual goods. That eating, even if approximately or directly about nourishing the body, is more ultimately about spiritual goods. And when this is understood, then eating, in fact, reaches its highest fulfillment. Consider, for example, there's a great book that I think I referred to once earlier by a man named Leon Cass called The Hungry Soul, where he, he, he talks about the beauty of the traditions of our Western civilization and what eating can look like when it is, as it were, done well. I know this almost sounds like a corny example, but think about the amazing human goods that are achieved through civilized dining. Family, communities that gather around a table and fulfill the, their bodily hunger in a very specific, rational kind of way, where the kind of guiding principle is the spiritual goods to be achieved. That oversees how we eat, when we eat, for somehow even these bodily desires are themselves given to us for the sake of serving spiritual and personal and communal goals. 
Another example, the sexual desire. What is, what is reason doing when it governs the sexual desire? Of course, this is the area where, where I'd say we as Christians are, are perhaps most misunderstood. But in a sense, it's, it's, it can be said very simply. When we're talking about the sexual desire as a bodily desire, if we're talk, talking here about the sense appetite being governed by reason, so, of course, the sexual desire that can be also going on in the will and not so much the body desire. But talking about the bodily desire, clearly, we can even just say philosophically, nature has this desire. Obviously, we know that means God has designed as such to serve the spiritual good of the union of spouses. An objective view would see this so clearly the bodily appetite is itself for the sake of a spiritual communion of persons. And thus, so what does it mean when, when we say, well, reason should govern our, govern our sexual appetite? Reason doesn't govern just by saying, no, 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 no. Right? Reason governs by guiding it to its ends. So reason governs it precisely by guiding it to its glorious end. For the sexual appetite precisely receives its fulfillment only in a spiritual communion of persons. And at the end of the day, is that obvious to everybody? So we have these very concrete examples of how powers of the soul achieve their goal precisely when reason understands the primacy of, I'll just say, things spiritual and guides all of the powers, including the lower ones, towards that. Now again, this isn't a flattening of reality. It doesn't mean at the end of the day everything is just about you know, being abstracted off in the spiritual realm. It gives its full due to the bodily things. Great insight that Aristotle and Plato insisted up and down is when you see these bodily powers for what they are as serving the spiritual good, they will achieve their greatest even bodily integrity. St. Thomas likes to say that about the sexual desire. Sexual desire, even as a bodily desire, he said, is surely most appreciated by the virtuous. Period. Isn't that classic? It can't be wrong. It's not wrong. So everything in its place means everything reaches its fulfillment. So we have these powers which are designed to all work together under the governance of reason, achieving their immediate goals, but always in the context of guiding us to spiritual goods. That said, let's change gears and take a look at the parable of the sower. We might. I'm going to, uh, first of all, just remind you of the parable by reading to you. It's in the 13th chapter of St. Matthew. It's also in the 4th chapter of St. Mark. And I'm going to read it to you from the 4th chapter of St. Mark. I hope that wasn't too quick a transition for you. I'm jumping over the front porch. (laughs) 
He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, so again, Mark 4, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it had not much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, you, you see, you see how that there were there were four there: the path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and then the good soil. And of course, all the first three all come to the same. And when he was alone, those who were about him with with the twelve asked him concerning the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may and he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which is sown in them. And these in like manner are the ones sown upon rocky ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown upon the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold, and 60-fold, and 100-fold. So we might say what, what I'd like to try to get some more insight into here is, and this is, this is always for me the, the, uh, such a burning question. If the good life is so obviously good, and so much the fulfillment of everything we're designed for, why is it that we don't do it? Well, in any case, why so many of us don't do it? So I thought, well, let's look at the fathers of the church and see, I hadn't really done this before, and I did it recently. I, I thought to myself, I want to see what the fathers are going to say about the ones who are the rocky, or the ones who are on the, the path, and then the rocky soil, and then the thorny soil, so I can try to find myself in there and figure out why is it, and here I am, the one always you know, teaching these philosophy courses and so understanding, in some sense, how clearly receiving God's word and living it would be true happiness. 
But we all know it's one thing to understand that. It's another thing to not forget it in our daily life. For I could very easily be the one who in the classroom teaches these things and then leaves. And like leaving the mirror behind, just start living however. So, what, what, what do they say? A couple, a couple of quotations... A couple of quotes, things that I'm going to refer to you, I could only find in Latin, and I couldn't find translated, and that's why it's not on the, on the page for you, and I, and I apologize. And when I've worked a little more on this project, I'll, I'll um, have, that, have that for you. You know what, Sabatine, I didn't get back my original front view. Can I just get one of those myself? Does anyone else need one? All of them here. Oh, that's the best. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, there are no more. I let you restrain. Sorry. 17, you can complain to Senior Magnitude about that. Okay. First of all, who are the ones along the path? This is is what one of the fathers says about those who are along the path. I'm not going to spend much time there for, I think... It's pretty obvious that those of us in the room are not the ones along the path because, well, in any case, we wouldn't have come out on a cold night to think about such things if we, if, if we weren't at least grown in the thorns anyway. Right? So we won't, we, won't, we won't sweat it too much. But they say, those who, who receive the word with no devotion of heart or those whose mind is well worn with evil thoughts. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're being poetic to fit in with the, the, you know, the path. Of course, is well worn, and so it doesn't receive the seed well. Those whose mind is well worn with evil thoughts. Or, or he also goes on to say, or simply the negligence and the idle. Let's go on to the rocky soil. The quotation that really moved me was those who are the rocky soil are those with a hardness of hearts having small desire for heavenly things. Those with hardness of heart having a small desire for heavenly things. This still isn't done here text yet. Again, this is the one where I couldn't find it printed in translation. This hardness causes shallow roots, he says, of the word in us. So so thinking, thinking with the image, certain soil is rocky. And of course, the whole point here is that soil types match up to soul types. So, what's this soul type here? This soul type has a certain shallowness and a certain hardness so that the word is going to have trouble getting its roots down into this soul. Why does the word, have, which in some sense we've received, have trouble really getting its roots into us? We have small desire for heavenly things. This strikes me as extremely profound. 
There's a line from the prophet Daniel where he calls himself a man of desires. The man of desires is the man of God. Of course, heavenly desires. This is the theme that actually ended up running through most of the Father's commentary. Why does the Word not really take root in us? Because we don't have full-blooded desires. We don't really want what's most important. So the Word just doesn't sink down. We've got lots of little desires making us run around all over the place, but we're not a man of deep desires for heavenly things, and so the Word finds no home in us. Amazingly, the theme about the soul among the thorns ends up being the same. It's just a slight variant. Concupiscences, they say, of the soul suffocates the word. Now, the term concupiscence is normally used to mean any disordered desire. Any desires that were out of place. Normally what it means is where our bodily desires are coming to the fore. And why are they disordered? To fit in with the theme from earlier, because they're running off on their own. This, of course, is particularly what we suffer with as a result of the fall. The main instance, of course, again, just it's so illustrative, is sexual desire. What, what the fathers and the doctors of the church tell us about Adam and Eve before the fall, they never, they're not experiencing concupiscence means their bodily appetite never even moved towards something unless their reason had already judged this is fitting and appropriate. So concupiscence in you and me is when our bodily desires are running out of whack, they just go off on their own. Out of the context of the spiritual goods they're designed to serve. We all know this is a big part of the spiritual life, is to try to put the order back in, as it were. And so here, who is the soul type that is the thorny soil? Someone who has these concupiscences, as it were, running to a certain various, well, I'll say to various degrees, out of control, which suffocates the word. It's very important for us to meditate on why is it that concupiscence suffocates the word? Well, I'd like you to take a look here at the quotation at the top of the page. And he, he changes gears a little bit in as much as here he's not going to fo- focus on the, one of the most obviously challenging bodily appetites, the sexual appetite. Here he goes for the different one, riches. St. Gregory, it is, so I'm going to read to you from that first quotation there. It's remarkable how the Lord interprets thorns as meaning riches, right? Because, of course, that was the the, uh, Lord's own um, gloss or explanation of what he meant by that soul, that soil. It's remarkable how the Lord interprets thorns as meaning riches, since the first, wounds, thorns, while the latter, riches, delight. Yet thorns they are, because they wound the mind with the stings of anxiety. And since they lead men on to sin, they stain 
as with the blood of a wound received. There are two things which he links with riches, cares, and pleasures. Because riches oppress the mind through care and undo it through abundance. They choke the seed because they strangle the throat of the mind with burdensome thoughts. And as long as they keep good desires from entering the mind, they, as it were, shut out the life-giving air. Now you see there the common, the common thread with what we just saw in the other father of the church. It was St. Bede, by the way. Talking about the rocky soil having small desire for heavenly things. Note here, St. Gregory saying, okay, Here's the problem with riches. And to me, we're not going to get this straight in the next, in the next five minutes, but I hope maybe we can take a, a step in the right direction. We've got to try to figure out this thing about riches. Our Lord is so insistent that riches are a problem. At least they're a problem if they're not recognized as the special spiritual challenge that they are. We have enough scriptural evidence along the lines of it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than dot, 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 and so forth. What I'd like to try to do here, just within a couple of moments, is try to get inside what's going on there. It's so easy. I, I, speaking for myself, I find it so easy to say, well, I mean, first of all, I'm not terribly rich, so I guess I'm not going to have to worry about this too much. Or just to think, well, clearly, that's just, you know, directed to Scrooge, right? Someone who's just all about money. I'm not all about money, so this can't be, this can't be you know, talking to me. But, well, those who are growing among the thorns. And I, for some reason, whenever I read, I always just think, I mean, the, the thorns seem to be the one where I just feel I am, or most people are, maybe I think most people are like me, I don't know. So what is, it, what, is this, what is it about the riches? Well, here I think St. Gregory is so helpful. Obviously, you and I know it's not that riches are intrinsically evil. It's not that they are simply to be avoided at all costs. But what is the point? Clearly, we have to give much spiritual attention. If we're going to be serious about our spiritual life, we have to give much spiritual attention to what should my attitude be towards material wealth and material goods. Side note, John Paul II was relentless about our society being consumerist. For some reason, it always strikes me this is one of the things that we find it very easy to ignore him on. We, you know, when he, when he says you know, pro-life things and so forth, we're like, oh, great, you know, and of course we kind of whack everyone else over the head with, you know, see, we've got to be pro-life and so forth. Meanwhile, the things that were more directed at you and me are profoundly challenging of our way of life. You know, more, I find myself sweeping that under the carpet. Who's a consumerist? Does anyone reading John Paul II go, yep, that's me, I'm just a consumerist. I'm all about consuming things. But clearly he was trying to help us understand what is an, what is an attitude like that places too much importance on riches. And in any case, 
has an attitude towards riches that's just bad enough that we don't have that deep soil, that deep soul in which the desire for heavenly things grows. I suggest for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, that it's really right here that the challenge for you and me is it's not going to be on, well, you know, were we all doing you know, crazy big mortal sins? The question is, are we going to end up being the ones who the word was kind of taking root and, and somewhat anemically growing, but it never really took off? Why not? Well, desires for riches strangle the throat of the mind with burdensome thoughts. And as long as they keep good desires from entering the mind, they, as it were, shut out the life-giving air. Let's go on to the good soil. St. Bede, on the good soil, what it's like is this quotation here. This is the second one on your page. That finally you need to... Oh, okay. Tell us, tell us something about that soil that's deep. Of course, every, every gardener knows. It's, it, you, 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 good soil is all about the depth of it, where the roots can go down. And so St. B says, the depth of soil, that would put us into the fourth category, that is necessary in order to receive the divine seed, is the uprightness of soul in the one experienced in spiritual practices and accustomed to obeying consistently the divine commands. I invite you to, to, to consider with me what's going on there, and I'd like to connect to, to, what, to what we just said. The depth of soul that's necessary in order to receive the divine seed is the uprightness of soul in the one experienced in spiritual practices and accustomed to obeying consistently the divine commands. When I see that, what I see going on there is St. Pete saying, to amplify St. Gregory's point, there are some souls who have been so disciplined in pursuing spiritual practices and so persevering in obeying the divine commands that they have cultivated within themselves desires for heavenly things, such that it is truly the love of their life. And then the word simply takes off. It grows to fruition, for it's growing, as it were, in love. Where truly, what most inflames us is the word itself, the spiritual goods to which we are called. So, to move towards a conclusion, I'd like us to, I'd like to suggest the very practical thing that we can do is ask ourselves, what are we doing to cultivate? spiritual desires in ourselves. For, obviously, the point of the parable is it's somewhat in our hands 
which one of the soil types or soul types that we will be. And it's very helpful for us to ask, where are we at this point? And to find in ourselves the truths that the fathers have referred to there about the rocky soil and about the thorny soil of, you know, are we really aflame with spiritual desires? I mean, isn't that, is that at the end of the day the difference between us and the truly holy person who's living the word? He's aflame with that. He, as it were, most wants it. I know it, 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 can, it can just, in a certain sense, ring hollow and sound so, so corny, but isn't that everything? You know, sometimes I think you know, when the sports coach says to the, to the players, it's all in wanting it. Think, well, there's, of course, a lot of truth to that, but there's also a bit of, uh, well, you know, how, how are the natural skills of these players? You know, it's not just what they want. But in the spiritual life, there is a profound truth in saying, do we want it? Do we want it? But then again, you know, maybe it does match up well with the athletic. Because if you really want it, then you're going to have the discipline to do the exercises and so forth that's going to make you the good player. And here, St. Bede is telling us, it's the one who's experienced in spiritual practices and accustomed to obeying consistently the divine commands. Have we been willing to go through the spiritual practices? Go through the pain and the cross, as it were, of a regular prayer life, of regular reading of the scripture, of regular reading of other spiritual masters, a regular regimen of mortifying ourselves. If we haven't done those things, is it any wonder that we have anemic spiritual desires? Is it any wonder that we, like most of the world, find ourselves wanting to sit around in front of the television for most of our free time? A sure sign of anemic spiritual desires is just wanting to kind of lose ourselves in whatever. I know that's, that's kind of a hard self-examination of conscience, but at the end of the day, isn't that the divide? It's the saint who, in a sense, wants to be on his knees. Or, maybe at first he didn't want to, but he was willing to be. And actually, you know in the stories of the saints, they persevered, but it gets to the point where there's no place they'd rather be then on their knees. The powers of their soul have come to their fulfillment, all working together for the end for which they were made. And they're actually happy now. They haven't beaten themselves to death. They've beaten themselves to life. For they dug deep, as it were, with those spiritual exercises, and lo and behold, inflamed that desire to go back to where we started in our first evening together, 
That is the desire that most characterizes who we are. That driving desire for God that so easily gets crusted over such that we don't even know that it's there. We need to rediscover ourselves in rediscovering spiritual desires through spiritual commitment, through spiritual regimen, through spiritual discipline, the cultivation of our soul as the gardener cultivates the soil so that it be deep, with deep and spiritual desires. And I end with St. Thomas's beautiful reflection that the main way that God, the main gift that God gives us to help us to cultivate our own spiritual desires is, once again, please, Eucharist. The Eucharist. As Saint, I'll just read again my favorite quotation from St. Thomas on this score. Yet the Son of Man gives this food in a spiritual way. Because human nature, weakened by sin, found spiritual food distasteful and was not able to take it in its spirituality. Thus, it was necessary for the Son of Man to assume flesh and nourish us with it. Because human nature, weakened by sin, found spiritual food distasteful and was not able to take it in its spirituality. So I close with the thought, it's not just our hard work in our discipline, which of course is of the essence. That's the cultivation that we must do on our part. But the beautiful truth is that we will most come to fulfillment by availing ourselves of this greatest gift of the Eucharist, where if we come truly prepared, truly disposed, we, in the Eucharist, will discover that object, that person, that will most call forth our desire. And in that desire being called forth, we will find who we are. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. Quick question, too, if there is one.